This is Dr. Marty Fried, Dr. Shreya Trivedi, and Dr. Alexis Bien. This is Core I Am Five Pearls Podcast, bringing you high yield, evidence based pearls. Today we're discussing pain control in the hospital. And we're specifically focusing on opioids. Here's why about a quarter of patients who are opioid naive prior to hospitalization end up receiving opioids after discharge or mm-hmm. on discharge by virtue of filling an opioid script in the week following discharge. And then of those, almost half of them are still using opioids more than 90 days later. Oh, snap. Who was that? Yeah, that is one of our outstanding peer reviewers, Dr. Shawnee Herzig. She's the Director of Hospital Medicine Research at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, and a practicing hospitalist. All of this taken together leads me to believe that hospitalization has been... um, under-recognized as a site that really matters in the overall trajectory of opioid use for patients in our country. Okay, so if I wasn't listening before, I certainly am now. And we are super excited to be joined today by Dr. Alexis Vienne, a hospitalist at Weill Cornell and a brand new friend of the pod. Alexis, it is so great to have you on. Really great to be here, guys. Thanks so much for working on this episode. We are also very grateful to Dr. Swapnell Haramoth. He's a University of Ottawa nephrologist and NefJC famous. Um, he was very helpful in helping us research for this episode. I tell my patients when I give them a prescription that your pharmacist will tell you this is wrong, but you know, say that your kidney doctor has given this prescription. <laughs> he knows what he's doing. Oh man, that was such a fun interview. We'll hear from both Dr. Herzig and Dr. Haramath more later in the episode. So Alexis, you approached us with the idea for this episode. So tell us more about what prompted the idea. Yeah, I heard Dr. Herzig speak about safe opioid prescribing last year at Society for Hospital Medicine. It was really helpful as one of my main interests is what does it look like to best treat pain in light of what we've learned in the current opioid epidemic. So let's get started with some of the questions on the pearls we'll be covering. Test yourself by pausing after each of the questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl 1, non-opioid analgesics. How effective are non-opioids, and how should we measure successful pain control in the hospital? Pearl 2, NSAIDs in special populations. Are NSAIDs contraindicated in patients with kidney disease, liver disease, or heart disease? If not, how can we use them safely? Pearl 3, safe opioid prescribing. For patients who require opioid analgesia, what are best practices? Pearl 4, opioids at discharge. When prescribing opioids at discharge, what can we do to minimize harm? And Pearl 5, a throwback pearl from our friends on the Mind the Gap segment, mechanism of acetaminophen and NSAIDs. How do we believe acetaminophen works and how does it compare to NSAIDs? All right, so Shrey and Alexis, I love how we're totally avoiding a controversial subject here. I think on the next episode, we should tackle sepsis bundles and Medicare for all. Uh, I'm, I'm not so sure about that, Marty. <laughs> the goal of this episode is to be as practical and realistic about pain points as possible. And we have some good stuff. Alexis, why don't you start off with the case? Sure. We have a 65-year-old woman with osteoporosis and CKD stage 3 who presents to the ER after falling at home. After the fall, she has severe 7 out of 10 left-sided, non-radiating hip pain, 
worse with bearing weight, and this is what prompts her to go to the ER. She's found to have pneumonia and a non-displaced pelvic fracture. Orthopedics is consulted and recommends non-operative management of the fracture. Hmm. Eesh, broken hip. We're really being tough on our imaginary patients here, guys. So, Alexis, uh, where do we start? Are we uh, thinking, you know, PCA and call it a day? Oh, oh God. An important initial step in inpatient pain management is clarifying whether this is acute pain or an acute flare of chronic pain. The reason is that any escalation of a chronic pain regimen really should be coordinated with the outpatient provider. Also, chronic pain differs in terms of pathophysiology and treatment, so that's a topic for another day. Well, in this patient with a hip fracture, it's a pretty clear case of new acute pain and not a flare of chronic hip pain. Agreed. Next step is in classifying the pain as either nociceptive or neuropathic. Nociceptive pain includes things like musculoskeletal, inflammatory, procedure-related pain, as opposed to neuropathic pain. That includes things like post-herpetic neuralgia or neuropathies. Right. And I think the barrier here is just not to stop at the patient has pain, but asking those few extra questions, right? What is the quality of the pain? Where does it radiate? That'll help you characterize and classify the pain, which, as you'll see, will matter in terms of treating it. So for pain that is uh, inflammatory in nature, musculoskeletal in nature, I'm going to be reaching for things like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and acetaminophen as kind of the mainstays of therapy. While for pain that has a neuropathic component, um, exemplified by things like burning or tingling, um, I may start reaching for things like gabapentin or pregabalin. Great. So for this musculoskeletal pain, let's go deeper into NSAIDs and acetaminophen. What's effective dosing look like? An example of a regimen I would use for this patient would be something like scheduled Ketorolac 15 milligrams every six hours and Tylenol 1 gram every eight hours. Or another example might be naproxen 500 milligrams every 12 hours, again with that scheduled Tylenol every 8 hours. Keeping in mind here that when using NSAIDs, there's a ceiling effect in terms of pain relief. Right, so you don't have to reach for that 30 milligrams of Ketorolac, you can just stick with the 15 milligrams, because there is that ceiling effect of NSAIDs. If you want to read more on that, check out our show notes at coreimpodcast.com. Awesome. And the point here is that this dosing regimen gives us more continuous pain control instead of waiting for the pain to get severe than the patient asking for pain meds. And I've seen some people overlook the contribution of non-pharmacologic treatments, so don't forget things like mobility with physical therapy, heat packs, and those kind of interventions. Yeah, I am a big fan of some superficial heat. <laughs> I, also, I also really just appreciate you emphasizing scheduled medications, right? Because then we can add on PRN breakthrough meds as needed, which we'll get to in a later pearl. Right. I'm personally lucky enough to only have spent overnights in the hospital on two occasions, and that was the birth of my two daughters. I remember how difficult it was to get the PRN medications for my postpartum wife. And it's not because the nurses weren't amazing. It's just a constant juggling act for our inpatient nursing colleagues. And so um, it is just helpful to order those around the clock instead of just PRN. So often my team has put in PRN orders that we never even told the patient about. Then they never even know to ask for it. Exactly. And another pain point I see is that there's this idea that, okay, someone has 7 out of 10 pain. That's a severe category, automatically results in Oxy-10 stat. So I think we need to understand the efficacy of non-opioids compared with opioids. One of the big myths that I want to demystify is that 
the myth is that opioids are the most effective medications for severe pain, and that's simply not true. There are a number of different Cochrane reviews on topics ranging from post-surgical pain to acute low back pain to even nephrolithiasis, kidney stones, the, the, mo- the most painful thing supposedly that we see. And all of these Cochrane reviews show uh, at least as great efficacy for NSAIDs compared to opioids in each of these conditions with lower risk for side effects and other adverse effects. So I really think we need to dispel the myth that opioids are the most effective medications for severe pain. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've seen this in practice where patients with low back pain had a better response to NSAIDs and acetaminophen combination than to oxycodone. Yeah, this has been studied pretty extensively, and we'll link a few Sentinel articles in our show notes for those who want to dive into the efficacy literature a bit more. Yep. And just as important as starting out with effective non-opioids, I think we should also take time to talk about goals of pain control. So thinking to yourself, all right, I'm starting this patient on pain meds. When I go back to reassess the patient, what endpoints am I looking for? There's a movement away from using pain skills and towards talking about the impairment in function resulting from the pain, um, interference with sleep from So kind of the the implications of the pain for the patient's everyday life and sleep, as opposed to where is your pain on a scale from zero to 10. And I would strongly argue that our goal is to achieve tolerability of pain rather than its complete absence. Um, We need to find the right balance of benefits and risks ultimately. And when we're reaching a situation where we're um, achieving complete absence of pain, we are almost always overshooting this balance and placing a patient at higher risk. And so I discuss with patients that my goal is to make the pain tolerable enough to you that you can get up and engage in your daily activities and be able to get, you know, a a decent night's rest. So that explicit discussion of expectations here with our patients makes a huge difference. I certainly know that I can definitely do a better job in the beginning of the hospitalization discussing what the next few days are going to look like, right? Like how often are they going to see me? Who is their contact person? And what are the realistic goals for the major hospital problems, pain being one of them? I've definitely learned that the hard way. A bit of time on day one can make some tough conversations on day two and three a little bit easier. So to summarize this, Pearl, the main takeaways are that non-opioids can and should be the foundation of pain control in our hospitalized patients. Their efficacy is underappreciated, and we should be writing for them standing instead of as needed. Finally, messaging is crucial. Set expectations around goals of pain control, focusing more on functional outcomes than a number. So I'm all on board with this idea that more non-opioid analgesia is in the hospital. But our patient has a history of stage 3 CKD, and I can already hear all the pushback my (laughs) residents are going to be giving me about NSAIDs in patients with kidney disease. I totally understand the hesitation. Dr. Herzig had a great point about NSAIDs and opioids. The one thing that, um, that I have noticed is that I think it's crazy how underutilized NSAIDs are. And I think that it stems from both an underestimation of their efficacy and an overestimation of their risks. And you can contrast that with opioids where I think we've had an overestimation of their efficacy and an underestimation of their risk. All right. I 
I need to replay that twice because it sounded so good and the paradox is true. If we think about it, the risk of renal complications in NSAIDs has been taught very early and reinforced throughout our training. And we often forget when we opt for opioids over NSAIDs, we're making a risk-benefit choice. And Dr. Herzig did a really nice job in our opening clip explaining that a major risk of inpatient opioid use is ongoing outpatient opioid use. And this is in addition to the known risks of respiratory depression, sedation, constipation. So let's spend a little bit of time on the risks of NSAIDs. Quick question, do you guys remember how NSAIDs cause AKI? Yeah, somewhere in my noggin. Wait for it. Wait for it. No, just tell me. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no worries here. I totally forgot this med school nugget as well until we spoke to Dr. Haramath. They're just like ACE inhibitors at a different level, right? ACE inhibitors act on the efferent, uh, prostaglandins act on the afferent, and NSAIDs block that. Uh, So just like if your volume contracted, your ACE inhibitor is not going to be good. Similarly, if you are on a heavy NSAID dose and you become volume contracted, lo and behold, you're going to get AKI. Um, so those those effects are genuine. I, I believe them. Uh, and that's a risk that you're taking when you're prescribing these drugs. But that doesn't stop us from using ACE inhibitors. So why should that stop us from using uh, NSAIDs, uh, especially short-term NSAIDs? That's really powerful when we put NSAIDs and ACEs side by side like that. I lost track of the fact that mechanisms of AKI in NSAIDs and ACEs are similar. I mean, think about all the heart failure patients who have tenuous volume statuses who are on ACE inhibitors long-term, and we don't necessarily worry about the long-term renal complications. Yeah, we should point out that Dr. Haramath was very transparent that his opinion probably doesn't represent the majority of nephrologists, but he argued that we're probably overly cautious, especially when we compare the risk of NSAIDs to opioids in patients with CKD. I'm saying that there's no hard contraindication. I'm never going to say never use it. Uh, so that's the those are the kind of bold statements that I did. Um, I would say that in the uh, GFR of 45 to 60, especially, you should not be worried. Um, GFR of 30 to 45, a little bit more worried, less than 30, you know, you have to be a little bit brave. Uh, make sure the nephrologist is on board uh, if you're using NSAIDs, because otherwise, you know, they'll come back and bite you. So can I just say that after this interview, I chuckled for days imagining my local renal team chomping at me like snapping turtles for causing NSAID-induced AKI. I kind of imagined them as like the Hungry Hungry Hippos game. You guys oh remember that goodness. one? Yes, yeah, yes. Definitely. Can we get a hashtag bite like nephro trending on Twitter? Yes. I might log into NephJC this week just to start it up. Uh, yeah. Actually, I don't, I don't know if that'll catch on. I feel like nephrologists are some of the nicest people in the hospital. That's so true. We had a lot of fun listening to his take on the subject, but he didn't sugarcoat the risk either. But definitely, yeah. in dialysis patients, it makes a whole lot of sense to use uh, NSAIDs. You know, there's no kidney. Who cares? <laughs> um, they, they, they can. I mean, I'm, I'm kidding, but, uh, you know, there's no kidney left to damage. So even if you, yes, uh, the hyperkalemia is real. The uh, hypertension that can happen in some patients is real. Um, they can cause AKI. They can cause a decrease in GFR. If you have... Uh, pre-renal conditions where you're dependent on the prostaglandin-mediated vasodilatation of the afferent arterioles. Right. So in end-stage renal disease, if there is, quote-unquote, no kidney left to damage, it then begs the question, how much do we have to worry about NSAID's effect on further kidney damage or things like hyperkalemia or hypertension, both of which are renal-mediated? It sounds like per Dr. Hermod's expert opinion, not as much. 
But what about our CKD population? Did Dr. Hermoth say anything about which NSAIDs are more preferable? Are all NSAIDs the same? Yeah, so his main point here was about NSAID potency. The idea being that risk increases with higher potency NSAIDs, which is kind of obvious, but I really wasn't aware of which common NSAIDs were low versus high potency. Looks like indomethacin is probably more harmful, and options like celecoxib and naproxen probably cause less renal side effects. But he made it clear that we don't have the head-to-head studies to confirm this. Yeah, and since we're talking about risk of NSAIDs in our renal patients, what about the data in other populations? So say our patients with GI risks or cardiovascular risks. Yeah, so the risks are definitely real. But GI and cardiovascular risk all come down to the degree of exposure. Okay, that makes me feel a little bit more comfortable. A really cool study recently published in JAMA Internal Medicine looked at claims data for a ton of high-risk patients with CKD, hypertension, and CHF who are exposed to NSAIDs, and those with the same risk factors not on NSAIDs. There was no difference in death, cardiovascular disease, or renal complications. Nice. And then what about our high-risk GI patients? Yeah, so there are probably two overlapping but distinct categories of high-risk GI patients. There's those who are at risk for bleeding and those with risk for decompensated cirrhosis. So for that first group, the American College of Gastroenterology recommends short-term PPI therapy if a patient is moderate to high risk. And this is really to prevent NSAID-induced upper GI ulcers and bleeds. So our patient is 65 years old. She's on high-dose NSAIDs, so she falls into that moderate-risk group, and PPI is something we might want to consider. Excellent. Other high-risk features uh, include previous ulcers, concurrent use of steroids, aspirin, NSAIDs, or anticoagulation. We'll link the paper in the show notes, but I have to admit, these recommendations are from 2009, but good for you to know in terms of consideration. And also remember here that we're using these as short-term medications for acute pain, likely one to two weeks. Right, right. Exactly. Okay, so shift gears. Let's not forget about our friend, the liver. Any guidance on NSAIDs in patients with cirrhosis? (laughs) Right. So cirrhosis makes many medications more challenging to use um, because of the altered drug metabolisms. And in general, NSAIDs are no different. So what I found was that patients with decompensated liver disease are much more dependent on that prostaglandin-mediated renal perfusion. So in patients with ascites, using NSAIDs increases the risk for AKI. One other thing to keep in mind with patients with cirrhosis is the increased risk of bleeding. This is obviously especially in patients with known varices. All right, so let me summarize what I'm hearing here. NSAIDs are generally safe and probably underutilized in patients with CKD, especially those with stage 3 or 4 CKD. That's not to say they don't come without risks, right? Monitor for hyperkalemia, hypertension, fluid retention, and perhaps recruit your local friendly nephrologist to monitor and avoid those hashtag nephrobites. (laughs) And like any other intervention, use the least therapeutically effective dose to reduce the risk of other complications like cardiovascular or gastrointestinal disease. Back to our case, our 65-year-old patient with a hip fracture and pneumonia, she's put on standing acetaminophen, Cotorolac around the clock with a PPI chaser, and she's struggling. She can't participate with PT because of pain. Her pneumonia is getting better though, um, but the case managers are getting a little antsy. She's on the verge of overstaying her 3.2-day pneumonia DRG admission. Hmm, so what do we do now? Sometimes we just need to reach for opioids in the hospital, and that's okay. But like in Pearl 1, we have to discuss expectations about the treatment plan. 
Um, and then I and then I think it's really helpful to talk to patients upfront about the duration of opioid therapy that you anticipate in the event that you are going to use opioids, uh, which should be very sparingly. Um, but talking to a patient upfront about how long you intend to use opioids can really save you um, a lot of longer conversations later on. Yeah, so I feel pretty confident that this is a conversation that I never have and probably should be having. Right? I always want to be this compassionate physician for my patients, but sometimes feel bad when I'm trying to set up these boundaries. It's just like a different tone. Dr. Herzig made a really great point about this. And I think part of being a compassionate doctor is always acting in our patient's best interest. And that's the funny conundrum here is that I think oftentimes we do things to make the patient happy because it's what the patient wants, knowing that it's not in their best interest. And we should really always try to step back and say, what is in this patient's best interest, even if they can't necessarily recognize it? Um, and how can I potentially get them to recognize it? Again, Dr. Herzig really drills into the importance of bedside communication skills when managing pain in the hospital. I find this really helpful. Yes, it is all about the little battles. And can I just indulge in one kind of opioid pet peeve that I want to tell you guys about? So please, 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 when writing for opioids for acute pain, please order them as needed. I recall some pretty ugly emergency response team codes during residency when morphine was written as standing instead of as needed, and the patient just got snowed. Yeah, I've seen way too many of those M&Ms too. Remember that standing acetaminophen and NSAID we talked about in Pearl 1? Well, this is where it becomes really important because it has opioid sparing effects. And just as important to know is that the combination of non-opioids and opioids creates a synergistic effect. For example, one Cochrane review looked at acute post-op pain treated either with oxycodone alone or in combination with acetaminophen compared to placebo. Oxycodone 10 milligrams plus acetaminophen was more effective at achieving pain reduction outcomes than the higher dose oxycodone 15 milligrams alone. That too will be in the... I was like, wow, that's really interesting. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's almost like I wrote this. So... That too will be in the show notes. Um, So a question I have is, how do we decide which opioid to use? Which specific opioid probably isn't quite as important as uh, selecting the right dose, the right route, and the right duration of use, depending on the circumstance. I think really the most important principles are use the lowest dose of oral opioids in short acting formulation for the shortest duration possible. And I I come back to that over and over again. Right. So studies show that as opioid doses and duration of prescriptions increase, the risk for overdose mortality increases. That's why the CDC guidelines specifically address dose and duration. So it sounds like adding 2.5 milligrams of oxycodone every six hours as needed to the acetaminophen would be a good option for our patient. And remember, since we schedule the acetaminophen, we want to avoid Percocet or other combination opioids to reduce the total risk of acetaminophen toxicity. Quick tidbit, we're using that 2.5 milligram dose because of her age of 65. Right. And another thing that I've seen done that is no bueno is using long-acting formulations for acute pain. Stick with the IR. 
Another amazing JAMA IM study, Marty, you'd be proud. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Noted that new initiation of long acting opioids for non cancer pain actually showed an increase of mortality by a factor of 2.5 when compared to the immediate release. And also, this just makes sense because if the patient has acute pain, we want to be able to easily titrate the dose up or down, which is much easier with the immediate release. One last point is the route of administration. Wait, so you mean because the patient's in the hospital doesn't automatically mean we're defaulting to IV over oral? Yeah, there are a lot of good reasons to choose oral, actually. Even though oral meds have a little slower onset, we're only talking about 15 to 30 minutes compared to IV. And oral has a longer duration of action compared to IV. And we want to avoid more extreme peaks and troughs and therefore end up exposing our patients to less opioids overall. Hmm. Okay, so moral of the story, if they have the gut, use the gut. Yes, great. (laughs) All right, so let me summarize what I'm hearing with this pearl. Number one, expectations are crucially important when starting opioids for inpatient acute pain. Before prescribing, discuss how long you're planning on writing medications and don't fall into the trap that you're not being compassionate clinician by doing so. When choosing a specific opioid, adding a base of acetaminophen will help reduce the total opioids needed and actually is synergistic and augments pain control. Also, use the lowest dose and duration of oral formulation to provide longer coverage compared to the quick-off, quick-on IV formulations. All right, case update. So with two to three breakthrough doses of 2.5 milligram oral oxycodone, our patient was able to participate in physical therapy and is now ready for discharge. And it looks like at this point, she will need a short course of oxycodone when she's discharged. What's the best way to go about this? One thing we see emphasized with safe opioid prescribing at discharge is that it's important to make sure there's a conversation with the primary care provider. So as a primary care doctor, this is music to my ears. Few things are more frustrating than squeezing in that post-discharge transitional visit only to realize that my patient has been started on Percocets and now expects me to keep that train going. Right. Again, this is a communication issue. The main things we want to reinforce at discharge is that our expectation is that this acute pain episode will continue to improve. We expect the patient will be able to take less and less medications over time. But I would wholeheartedly agree with the statement that we should make sure that primary care physicians and other longitudinal providers understand the intent of any prescriptions that we write at the time of hospital discharge, as well as how long we anticipate the patient to actually need um, opioid therapy. How often are we actually having these pain management discussions during a handoff to a primary care provider? Yep. And we know that hospitalizations increase the risk of chronic opioid use. So a few minutes of handoff communication can really be helpful for all parties here, right? It can lessen the unease that an inpatient provider might have discharging a patient on opioids. And then on the flip side, the outpatient provider, it gives them a heads up on what the patient's condition was and then expectations that were there when they got the opioids on discharge. This last pearl is a pithy one. So in summary, we encourage all of our discharging clinicians, whether they are in the inpatient units, the emergency departments, or in the ICUs, to communicate pain management conversations to the primary care provider by email, phone, or maybe even in a chart message. Then, on the outpatient side, if the pain continues for a longer duration than expected, it might be up to us to kind of reconsider what is the etiology of this pain and is a further workup indicated at this point. All right, so let's recap our pearls before jumping into the throwback pearl. Pearl one, 
We have non-opioid tools that we can use to treat pain effectively in the hospital. When measuring response, function-related outcomes can give us a better indication of pain control than pain scores alone. Pearl 2. With careful monitoring, we can use NSAIDs in many patients with chronic kidney disease in the acute setting. Try to use less potent NSAIDs like naproxen and maybe involve the nephrologist if you're using them in patients with more advanced CKD. The same idea of the lowest dose apply when using NSAIDs in patients with cardiovascular or liver disease. Pearl 3. Safe opioid prescribing starts with a discussion of treatment goals and duration up front. Then we can use low-dose oral short-acting opioids for the shortest duration possible. Also, we can bind opioids with non-opioid adjuvants like acetaminophen and NSAIDs to create an opioid-sparing and synergistic effect. Pearl 4. We can minimize harm when prescribing opioids on discharge by communicating the expectation and conversations you've had with the patient to the primary care provider. So, on to the throwback pearl. Today, we're thrown back to an episode by our sister segment, Mind the Gap, who covered the mechanism of acetaminophen. What do you guys remember about how Tylenol and NSAIDs work? There's a lot of nuances here, but what I remember is that acetaminophen and NSAIDs both likely inhibit Cox enzyme from making prostaglandin, and it's prostaglandins that cause fevers. Exactly. And I think the cool thing was understanding where in the body each works. And then that helped explain why NSAIDs are an anti-inflammatory and why acetaminophen doesn't have anti-inflammatory properties. Exactly. NSAIDs act peripherally to block the Cox enzyme and reduce inflammation. Acetaminophen acts more centrally, so it's not a good anti-inflammatory medication. Right. And Dr. Tony Brow also released an awesome tutorial in conjunction with the Mind the Gap episode. He covered, again, acetaminophen pain control and fever reduction. So I definitely check that out. Yep. And to loop this idea of Tylenol, NSAIDs, and fever to our episode on pain management, I think there's one little nuance we should cover. I've been told, I don't know about you guys, to not put patients on scheduled acetaminophen and NSAIDs because we can mask fevers. But I don't know so much about that. What do we do about our lady with pneumonia who has pain from this hip fracture? Right. I've definitely heard this. I think if it's a patient where the diagnosis is uncertain, the presence of fever could be useful, and you might not want to mask the fevers by prescribing acetaminophen and NSAIDs. But honestly, masking a fever is unlikely to be clinically relevant in the majority of our cases, especially in a case like this where the source of infection is clear. We also have other markers to monitor infection, right? We can monitor weight count. We can monitor heart rate, among other things. Yep, definitely. Let's help her pain with some non-opioids. We know her pneumonia is going in the right direction. Right on. Awesome. All right. So that's it for our episode. Check us out uh, on our brand new website, coreimpodcast.com. Tweet us at coreimpodcast. We're also on Facebook at coreim and Instagram at coreimpodcast. And if you enjoyed listening to our show, give us a review on iTunes. It really means a lot. We put a ton of effort into these podcasts, so we'd love to hear from you. You can also send us an email. Our address is hello at coreimpodcast.com. Let us know what we're doing right. And more importantly, how can we improve? And always, opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, see your own healthcare provider for medical care.